I think is welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is powered by TD Ameritrade. Every stroke counts on the scorecard, and every penny counts in the market. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to straightforward pricing with no surprises, so you're free to swing with confidence. Visit tdameritrade.com slash fried egg. Member SIPC. Today we welcome on golf writer, author, and historian, also podcast host of the Renovation Report for TurfNet and the executive director of the Seth Rayner Society, Anthony Piapi. Anthony joins to talk about the history being made this week with the U.S. Women's Open being hosted at the Country Club of Charleston. It marks the first time that a U.S. Men's or Women's Open has been hosted at a Seth Rayner designed golf course. With no rain in the forecast and the best women in the world teeing it up, the golf should be fantastic this weekend. Highly recommend watching it. It'll be on FS1. I know Fox does a ton of coverage. I'm really excited for it. Uh, Anthony talks about, uh, Anthony goes in detail about Seth Rayner and where the Country Club of Charleston fell in his career, template holes, and much more. So without further ado, here's Anthony Piapi on Seth Rayner. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. kind of surprising that uh this is the first women's or u.s open at a uh rainer course i'm stunned by that i mean i knew this years ago you know we started looking at it it's just amazing when you think about it and they had to get somewhere right and the answer is no they never did yeah and it's like you can't even get like so you know cb mcdonald gets the design credit typically from magazines of of uh, Chicago golf, but Rayner did the complete redesign there. Sure. You know, there sure. Are letters that say <laughs> stay out of his way. And, and even yeah. then, you know, Chicago golf didn't host anything after, right. uh, right. after he redid it. A Walker cup. They hosted a Walker cup in what? 2005 or 2006, but you're right. That's absolutely it. You just thought somewhere along the line, something had to drop onto one of his courses, especially the stuff on long Island. And it didn't. I think the thing that I'm, I'm most fascinated about it is, for this week is that if you look at, you know, the women and, and the distance they hit the ball today, it's about, you know, the same as, as the distance players were hitting it in the late 20s when Rayner was really in his, in his heyday. Yeah, this course is going to set up absolutely perfect for them. You know, when I talked to Frank Ford about it, the, the longtime member, he was saying that if it gets windy, they're going to move tees around. You know, they have that kind of, if it's firm and windy, the, the USGA wants to kind of mess with these holes so they're playing different yardages and the 14th might be, was it the 14th might be drivable? You know, all that kind of stuff. It, it's going to be really fun. It's going to be hot. As, do you see the temperatures for the week? Yeah. It's all nine. It's 90s. Yeah, very, very warm. I, I'm hearing right now that it's extremely firm and fast. So right. hopefully the rain holds off um, and, it, and it can stay that way because I think that when you get that conditioning, um, you know, the rainer contours, especially out there, so many elevated greens, really come, the architecture really comes alive. Right. And, and it would be so cool if, you know, if, if they start playing the ball on the ground, I mean, that's going to be the, the, the most fun is going to be if people start doing that. You know, it's so firm, it's downwind. I guess the, not I guess, but the Frank, Frank Ford told me the, the prevailing wind is into your face on the second hole. So it's kind of crossing, quartering, crossing against you on the first. If they get the prevailing wind, they're going to be able to play some downwind shots and some upwind shots, keeping the ball on the ground. And that's going to be great to watch. Yeah, I think this is, uh, I think, I think Charleston, and I'm, I'm curious, I, you know, I, you're the obviously executive director of the Rainer Society, and few people have dedicated as much time uh, and energy into researching, 
you know, a man that's got very, very few records about him, Seth Rayner. But, you know, where does Country Club of Charleston fall in, in the Rayner kind of timeline? What what stage of his career is uh, the 1925 design? You know, unfortunately, it's at the end. He dies in he dies in late 19 dies in January of 1926. So this, you know, it's the it's at the end of his career, which his career was exploding at that point. I mean, Camargo is under construction. Southampton's under construction. Fisher's Island is just about finishing up. And the second course at this point is still going to be built. Yale is Yale just opens. So he's at the height of his, you know, his creativity at this point. It's all the great courses. Blue Mound is another one. You know, he's he'd gone and laid out Wiley and Mid Pacific. Um, he was he had done uh, the work in California that never got built. You know, because he died. He's at the he's all over the country and he's has these amazing designs. Yeah, it's a, and, and so at Country Club of Charleston, uh, he the the site in terms of you know what the topographical interest I think it would it would lend itself on the lower end but obviously it's very beautiful right there on the wapu river and the marshland of of charleston very close to the city center um how would you compare country club of charleston to some of his other designs so this to me is one of the classic examples of of you watch what he or another great architect does on a flat piece of land right at a place like yale and Fisher's Island that has massive amounts of movement, and even some something like Wanam Autonomy, there's not a lot of fairway bunkering because he's going to create hazards and preferred angles of play using the topography. But here on the flat ground at, at Charleston, he's going to put his bunkers in places that force you to think, that create the optimum routes, uh, that that make players seek out angles to play greens on into greens on certain conditions he you know this is this is him designing on a flat piece of land uh and it shows to me his brilliance in that there's some holes where it's important to be very precise off the tee and there's other holes where it's very important to be precise on the on the approach shot and so he kind of spreads that spreads that out you know and it's it's a it's a course that it's a course where he created that he created the angles and the with with the use of hazards and it's fantastic. Yeah, I think I think that too. I I think like a you know I'm a Chicagoan. Like there's a it it reminds me a little bit of Chicago golf where you know the the interest is much more created than you look at some of his sites. You mentioned Yale and Fisher's Island. Like Shore Acres is a perfect example in Chicago where he had a ravine scape, this na- unbelievable natural topography to route the course around. And, right. you know, far fewer bunkers and much tamer greens at Shore Acres than if you go down, you know, across town to Chicago Golf, you'll see some of the most epic green complexes and, and you know, a, a lot more bunkers comparatively. So it, right. it's interesting. And another course I think that would have fit into that, but it's been changed so much, is Country Club of Fairfield. When you see the original uh, drawing and you you see the foot the 1934 aerial you know there's bunkering all over that because again that's a, a for the most part a flat piece of land he's right on the water i don't think he look thinking about it i don't think he had the acreage to do the massive width you know that he might have wanted to do in some holes but he creates all his strategy w- with bunkers and it's it's fantastic how he does it and like you said at your acres he uses the ravines he doesn't need bunkers mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's it's something i've i've thought a lot about and it's like you know these guys, especially the Golden Age architects, they just understood what the right uh, level of of interest and challenge was. And, and you see at Shore Acres, like the very boldest greens or, or features like the cross bunker on one or the Brits on six come on the very flattest land right. at, out there. And then, you know, you look at the same way at, at Country Club of uh, Charleston, you know, the really bold bunkering you know, like the, you know, the, le- the leave and hole fourth, the, you know, the par five fifth, um, come on like the flattest, least interesting land. Right. And, and, you know, when Ron, Ron Forrest did a lot of work at, um, Newport country club in Rhode Island, and we were talking about, that's a very flat piece of land for the most part, there is some elevation change, but he talked about how 
Tillinghast had for what we would consider placid greens because bold greens on a windy site didn't make sense because even in the days when day when it opened, it, it would have made things crazy. So here are these kind of placid greens, again, in the context of Tillinghast, they're not pla mm -hmm. placid greens. But then he takes and bunkers that property so that you have to, the strategies created by him with these bold bunkers. And it's this, like you said, it's the golden age guys understood that. They let, if the land was there, they let the land do the, do the talking, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, so Seth Rayner's career, I think, is from, with respect to the other golden age architects, most of them came from, you know, a great playing lineage. And Rayner was definitely kind of the black sheep of them. It, it, you know, for our audience that might not know that much about Seth Rayner, who was Seth Rayner before, uh, before he met C.B. McDonald? He was the city engineer for the town engineer for the town of Southampton, New York. And he was brought in to do, uh, to drag the chains and, and do the, the surveying of the property that, that national was built on. And he had no background whatsoever in golf. Um, he had been on the Shinnecock when Shinnecock was expanded. Uh, at one point, his dad, who was also a civil engineer had done that work and McDonald, uh, Rainer had been on that golf course, but that's it. And he didn't play prior to getting into the business. And when McDonald hired him, there's no indication that he was ever thinking of anything beyond just that one job. And Rainer did such fantastic work that he kept him on. So, so he, he gets on with national and, and then he starts, he's, he's McDonald's guy. And, you know, the next course, you know, kind of how did that progress? Well, I, let me back up just for a second. I have a theory and I, I, there's no way I can prove it or I, I don't think it can be disproved. Mc, McDonald wanted to build a golf course, right? He was going to be the first guy in the United States, maybe in the world to create a golf course. He was going to make greens to certain sizes, right? He wanted them so, so high, so wide, so long. He needed somebody who said, if you build this, you need X amount of soil to do that. And then here's where you can take them from. If you build these five bunkers, you want to build this big, we can take that soil and build that green. Mm -hmm. And so after that, I think that this kind of hits McDonald that he needed that person. And the second place they go to is piping rock, and, you know, and, and there's, and that was a million bunkers at that place. And there's a lot of elevation change at times, a lot of elevation change there. Um, and, and, and from then on, however many courses McDonald designed after that, somewhere around 14 or 15, no matter what he was doing, Rayner was the, con was the head of construction. He was the, he was the guy on site, even Later in his career, when, when Rayner had his own design career, which started in about 1914, 1915, he would go back and, and lead the projects for McDonald. Yeah, one of the most interesting things I found when I was doing research for the U.S. Senior Women's at Chicago Golf last year was a letter from McDonald to the club that it, it saying, you know, Rayner had designed golf courses from St. Louis to Maine. Which yeah. you know is like oh you know in in essence you, you know <laughs> McDonald is kind of saying St Louis is uh, you know those Rainers the design really I think he was really good at promoting Rainer when you when you read um, Scotland's gift McDonald's biography and you see some of his other quotes I think he was really really good at at promoting Rainer and giving Rainer credit you know he calls he calls Lido a Rainer golf course right we know that we know that. Yale is unequivocally, we have the, there's board minutes and all that stuff. It's a Rainer golf course, but he calls Lido a Rainer golf course. And I think that could be discussed or, or argued. And, you know, he says in the, in the book that, that Rainer designed 300 golf courses, which he didn't do. He never designed a golf course in Maine. We know that, you know, for sure, unless something pops up. You know, that's, know, that's one everybody. of the things I'm going to go, I want to go on a quest to, to see if there. <laughs> Visit every course in Maine in search yeah, of it. Yeah. Well, you know, I've had the discussion with a lot of Maine people about is there any, you know, is there anything there that would make you think, oh my God, this is Rainer? And now with all these newspapers getting digitized, you know, we could we can look into small town Maine in the 1920s and nobody's come up with anything. I mean, it would be fantastic. We still don't know how we get to Musquamakin and did that work there. Yeah, you know, tell and we know that Tell me a little bit about you know your research on Rainer, and I, I think people you know generally interested. Like as a as a historian, and you know you've written some club histories, you've written your book uh, Finest Nines, and uh, 
you know, tell tell us a little bit about, you know, the process of, of tracking down Rayner, who was notorious for no, not having correspondence, notes or anything. Right, right. And, and we should really put that in the context with that virtually every other Golden Age architect wrote at some point, right, wrote about architecture. And Rayner never did that. And as far as we know, he was interviewed once by the Olympic Club for a course he designed for them that was never built. We don't have all the other quotes we have from him are secondary. Rayner said at, you know, this will be the great, greatest course ever. It's somebody from the club talking. It's not Rayner saying to a reporter. So you just kind of do this thing where you start looking through club. You know, you try to get you get in touch with clubs and see what they have. And you talk to them, see what they have in their files. You try to get the club history books and see that. And you find mistakes. You know, it's it's interesting. They have him in the one of the early histories of the history books from Mesquamic, if they have his name spelled wrong and they don't even know his first name. And that book came out in 1996, I think. And then, you know, you so then you just get on digitized newspapers and you just start searching out Seth Rayner or S.J. Rayner, which he signed his name a lot, or Seth J. Rayner. The problem with that is Rayner is a very common name on Long Island and now into New Jersey. And Seth Rayner wasn't an uncommon name. So you bump into more than one Seth Rayners even in that time period. And then the other thing, and I, I give a talk to superintendents on how to track the how to discover the architectural history of your golf course. One of the things you have to do is learn to spell wrong. You have to learn how how would Rayner be misspelled in a newspaper? And R A Y N E R is one of those ways. We've actually found some good stuff um, spelling it wrong. And and the two big biggest websites right now that people use are newspapers.com, which you have to pay for, which is fantastic, and um, Chronicle, it's called chroniclingamerica.gov. It's run by the Library of Congress. And because some of these newspapers still have uh, copyright, they're only up into the 20s of what they're allowed to, if they don't get permission from the paper, to use. But So we're not into the late 20s yet. We haven't seen like 23, 24, 25, 26 in a lot of newspapers, which is we know we're going to find some more Rainer stuff. But you just kind of start doing something like that and it's really kind of strange how you bump into it because you'll find you'll do something like I, I found that it's much better or not much better, but you always should search the word links besides golf course mm-hmm. and always make sure that if, a, if you're searching out, say, Country Club of Fairfield, you call it Fairfield Golf Club in a search because somebody's going to get it wrong along the line. And sometimes club change clubs change names and you do that kind of stuff and you just go down a rabbit hole and you look up and you've been spending four hours doing that and you found some cool stuff. <laughs> what what's uh what's been your favorite uh Seth Rayner discovery? Wow. Um so well, I did the book for Shore Acres. Uh and they had had a clubhouse fire in the 1980s then they thought they lost everything and I asked them just to check to see what they could find and uh they found a an old uh uh what am I thinking in a bank a safe deposit box that had five or six letters in it. And some of the letters are directly related to hiring Rayner. And then they hire Rayner in 1916 and 1917. They stopped the project because of World War One. And then they come back and they restart the project in 1919. And there's some letters between the founders talking about bringing Donald Ross in. Maybe they could get Donald Ross to draw a plan and then they'll decide which plan they like better. It sounded like they didn't want to pay Ross. And one of the references in the letter is we could something along the line of we could do what they did at Old Elm and lock them in the room together. And then it was Colton Ross, but lock Rayner and Ross in a room together and have them battle it out. And it's just stunning that they even thought that. And uh, there's no, there's no uh, history that, that Ross was ever involved. I've talked to the Tufts library, the, the Donald Ross archives down there. There's no, there's no uh, record of him ever being involved in Shore Acres. But for a second, they were gonna they were gonna pause the Rainer plan and bring in Donald Ross. How about how and about the the idea of just putting two professionals in a room and letting them duke it out? <laughs> and, and yeah, as if what happened at Old Elm was okay. You know what I mean? Like that. Like that was a good experience for everybody involved. I know it was really kind of, it's really kind of crazy. I mean, you bump into some funny things. I found out that. I found out that Rayner was was robbed when he was down doing the Gibson Island project. Uh, we know that he was in a train he was in a train accident where the engineer got killed. Um, we know that he lost his vest one time in Southampton, and a uh, some indigent person returned it and was given a reward. 
Uh, I can tell you what car he drove for a few years. I know what his license plate was for a couple of years. Wow. wow. Yeah, I mean, you, you can bump into some crazy stuff. And and Rainer's grandniece uh, is still alive. So I, I, she never met um, Seth, but she knew her aunt was Araminta. Or they called her Aunt Minta, but Seth Rainer's wife. And so there's a, you know, a direct connection. There's a direct connection to, to him through his through this grandies and that's great to hear that now for a quick word from our sponsors this episode is powered by td ameritrade great players change the game and td ameritrade's innovations have always been game-changing for investors from being the first brokerage to let you trade on your phone to being the first to feature voice trading on amazon alexa td ameritrade has always led the way with breakthrough technology that brings the market to you visit tdameritrade.com slash fried egg to learn more Member SIPC. Now back to Anthony Piapi. If you could ask him one question, what would your question be? I what did he what did he suddenly realize? You know, he was an engineer that didn't understand anything about golf. When he looked at those template holes and he, and and McDonald showed him what a good golf hole is, like what did he grasp right away? That, even though he wasn't a player. Because he has artistry to his work. He doesn't repeat holes from golf course to golf course. And I, I'll argue that on a lot of his golf courses, the best holes out there are the ones that he created. I completely my, my, agree with that. My, my favorite hole at Fisher's Island, and I caddied there for three years, is the short par 4-7. There is so much strategy. Right. And if you understand the wind and you understand the contour and the angle of the green in relation to the small pond, I think it's a genius hole. What is it, 340 yards, 350 yards? It's a genius golf hole. And you can have sandwich in your hand and make seven in a heartbeat. And yeah. you can have six iron in your hand and make a, a tap in par and walk to the eighth hole. So, this, yeah, that's, I'd say the same thing with, like, Shore Acres. Like, 11 and 15 might be the two best golf holes on that, on that course and two of the best holes in the world. And they're, they're, they're completely his own original holes. Right. I, you know... In the world of, of art, you, you kind of look at somebody's career, you look back to see when they, you know, their, their different time periods and when they got good and when they made certain changes. The same thing with, with musicians. To me, when you look back at Rainer's career, Shore Acres is this thunderbolt that says this guy knows how to route a golf course. He's got five ravines on that piece of property and he uses them in every way possible. You play alongside of them. You play over them, you play to them, you play away from them. It's just amazing. And that's one of the first golf courses he ever routed. You play over them, into them. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. It's that I, I, I wrote a whole article about that, that cadence of the routing. How he, it, And it's always different, you know, in different spots. It's, it's incredible. It, that is one of the greatest routings in all of golf history. Oh, I, I think so, too. I mean, obviously I'm biased because... I'm such a huge Rainer fan, but when you walk that, I've never sent anybody, or I've never known anybody who's played that golf course that just didn't come back stunned. I mean, what is it? How far is it from the back tees? And you'll use every club in your bag yeah. because there's places you want to lay up. There's places you want to be bold. There's these angles you have to play. You hit balls to certain spots and it turns out that's wrong. If the, you play a hole and boy, if the flag was on the other side of the green, I would have, this would have been the perfect angle, but it's on the right side. So now I have to play away from the flag. I mean, that's he routed that in 1916. It's among the three or four first courses that he ever routed. Mm-hmm. It's, it's unbelievable when you think about it in that context. And right. I mean, that's why right. it's a great, a great first question. And is, I was going to say, so, so templates have have come in in vogue in the last. I, I'd say, I mean, really, I think the evangelist probably was like the the first, you know, kind of. Uh, key domino in this, you know, and then the internet, obviously, with people right. being able to find information and everything. Right. Um, you know, in terms of get, steering this a little back bit back to Country Club of Charleston, what to you, to in your sense, what are the most impressive template holes that we'll see this week at the U.S. Women's uh, Open? I have a problem with people who 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 rank. I don't know if you do this, yeah. but rank yeah. the best of. I hate that. Because I do, it's they're not the same. It's really difficult to rank the best short hole and the best. I agree e- with that. Eden hole. Like you know, you get to you get to some place like 
Hodgkiss school and you play this downhill Eden par three and it's supposed to be a, a slightly uphill hole and it, and the green works so well on that on that hole. How how do you put that up against the Eden, say at Country Club at Charleston, right? Or at Yeaman's Hall? I don't understand. I just think it's a great hole in the setting. So I like that. The hole that stunned stunned me at Charleston was that that the road hole, which is a what, three hundred and ten yard par four. It's usually a stiff par four or a or a par four and a half. Mm -hmm. And he really created this strategy using the road hole green, even in the day when that, when that, with the, with the longer, longer grass and balls, even burned out, probably not running as far. It's still a drive and pitch hole. The strategy that's there because of the, of the, uh, the bowing of the fairway balls run off to the right balls run off to the left. You get yourself in these situations. You're staring at this, the 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 hell not the hell bunker the ro the the road bunker right in front of you, you know, and you're just kind of sitting there like, what do I do with the shot? And you realize you're holding a sand wedge in your hand, yeah. you know, and you can really you can really make a, a a quick five or quick six there with one bad swing. And when I was talking to to Frank Ford about this, you know, here's this here's this guy that won the you shot sixty two there he, he won the Azalea Invitational six times. He said you get off of eleven, which is this ridiculously difficult reverse Redan, and you let down because you're saying to yourself, it's just a 310 yard hole and you make a bad swing with the driver and you're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And I think that's an amazing, amazing strategy that just revolves around, you know, this convex fairway and this road and classic road hole green. Yeah, and that old tree that sits there. And yeah. If yeah. you get a little <laughs> overzealous, you're like, your, your ball's definitely going to hit that tree. You know, oh, yeah. if you get trying yeah. to take off a little bit more and then the green site, like we talked about, like the, you know, on, on such a, you know, modest piece of land from terms of movement, that green, the way it sits there with the way, you, what you talked about with that fairway slope, how, if you, if you play safe over left, it's just going to keep trundling down into the left. And that green yeah. just sits on that yep. subtle little knoll that they have, you know, those three greens that, you know, 12, uh, 14 and 16 on. Yeah, I read your article about that. That's that, that's a really interesting observation that he put he found that knob and he built those three greens on it. The other thing that's amazing is that when people see the eleventh, the reverse Redan, that was a natural outcropping. That was just some in this on this flat piece of land was this huge mound of soil, earth, and he just put a he put a green on there, and that's pretty amazing. But but you're right. I mean, he he found those that little ridge. He places those three greens on it. They're all amazing. It's a very cool. You know, it's very cool. But the other thing about that hole is it is an easy hole if you play it right. Maybe you lay up off the tee and maybe you hit a wedge into the to the green and give yourself a 20-footer and you take, you know, problems, all the problems away and you make your two-putt and you go to the next hole. It's it, That's a hole where, you know, it, McDonald, McDonald talked about this with the Haskell ball in, uh, in his biography about how, you know, certain holes became infinitely more interesting and how some great holes became, you know, very average and, you know, these average holes became great. And I think that 12th hole with, with the longer drives has become actually more interesting because you get all those odd little half wedges up around that tiny, skinny little green, you know, it, it, it's just, it's a very, very good hole in today's modern setting. And, you know, it might be better today than it was 50 years ago. I think you're right for the average player, and I think it will be that way for the women too. From what I understand, the guys in the Azalea are now just driving it up next to the green. You know, they're hitting it 310 yards and just rendering uh, the architecture obsolete. But I can see that happening this week coming up with somebody sitting there and just, you know, even thinking that they've laid back further enough. And now you have this really weird little number, 64 yards to a flag that's just right of the bunker in front of the green. I mean, what do you do? You know, you're not, it's not going to be a, it's not going to be a shot you're comfortable over. You know, you're just going to, it's not going to feel right. I agree with you. That that, you can, you can, you can either good drive and be in an awful spot. Th that little knoll back there. I, I mean, I, I'm kind of bummed out. I had a late minute, uh, last minute conflict that I can't go down this weekend. That would be just such a fun spot to sit and watch golf. Yes. All yeah, yeah. <laughs> I agree with you. And, you know, the 17th is right there, and that's a really good short hole, and the green is a lot of fun, and they're going to stand there and play it somewhere between, like, 145 and 160, and, you know, come Sunday, it's going to have, you know, depending on where that flag is, 
you, you, you hit into that green and you hit it in the middle and that means you're, you're putting out of the thumbprint. There's no easy putts on that. Yeah. That's, that's, green, unless you fire at the, unless you fire at the flag and you don't want to do that because if you fall off an edge, you know, you're in those bunkers. So that's the, that's the, I think Rainer's par three, the short designs with, with the thumbprints. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, what made him so brilliant was how subtle the challenge was, but how difficult it was at the same time to like, so hard to make two, but Oh, not, absolutely. Not really absolutely. that hard to make a four. <laughs> no, no. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. I've made a lot of easy fours on his short holes. It's really, you know, you can, I can three putt from anywhere because you're going through the thumbprint a lot. Yeah. You know, and, but you're right. And it's you like get, this 9,000 square foot green or 7,000 square foot green and 140 yard shot. And you, at first look, it's like, oh, this is really easy. I played in the Connecticut four ball at Yale a couple of years ago, two years ago. And it was an off, it was soft and wet and whatever. And we, we made one birdie and I birdied the short hole and I wasn't trying to birdie it. I was trying to get a putt away from the hole. So I had a two footer for par and I pushed it and it's like, I think that might be the only birdie I've ever made on a Ranger short hole. It's uh, yes, it's, it's, they're very, very difficult and they almost get more difficult over time because they get in your head. Oh, cause you know, too, like, you know, you get a shot and you're like, if that flag's there, I can't be here because I'm going to have to putt through or around or over, you know, and watch the pros deal with it when they played at, when they played Greenbrier. I mean, it was, they have difficulty with it. So we talked a little bit about some of his early projects, um, and uh, Country Club of Charleston was one of his later. Uh, how would you say Rayner evolved as an architect from his early work to his his later work? That's interesting. The problem I have with making that making a comment about that is it, it's so few of the golf courses are exactly the way he designed them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm really hesitant to say. He did this or he, or he did that. I, I think, geez, that's a good question. I think he really got into understanding bunkering a lot more later on. I think in some of his later courses, you, it's when you see a lot like with, with Yeamans and with Country Club of Charleston. But I think he, he really understood, he really understood strategy and I, early on. And I think he just got better and, you know, better and better at it. I, there's a, I don't know if you ever saw the letter in Chicago where he went out to work there. He had never been to the Plains. And so in the 1920s, Wheaton, where this golf, where Chicago Golf Club is, is the Plains. And he sat in a tower for two days and just looked out at the Plains to kind of get this, absorb this feel of what was, what the landscape was. And so he could design a golf course that fit into the landscape. That's, and that's astounding, right? Yeah, yeah. Like just taking in the 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 nature to you know i think that's something that so i would say i'd classify rainer as uh golden age maximal <laughs> that, but, that's an interesting way to put it i mean but like so golden age maximal meant like move dirt where you absolutely have to you know to generate interest which usually came at the green sites right but well, for the most part, just so sympathetic to the to the land because you can couldn't afford to move, change the way or or feasibly do it, change the way a fairway moved. Right. I mean, and, and I, you're absolutely right in this. I mean, look at it, the, the one of the misnomers of Rainer is that he lo- moved a lot of dirt, and he didn't. You go to a place like Fisher's Island, or you go to a place like Wanamatonomy, or Hodgkiss, or Country Club of Charleston. What did he move dirt for? He created tees and greens, right? That's it. And bunkers. That's it. If the land did, if the land didn't need bunkers, he didn't create bunkers. Yeah, he didn't move a whole lot of dirt. Golden Age Maximal, right? I go with that. Yeah, it's, that's like the right. You know, I I don't know. That's my my thought is like it's kind of you know the right way to do construction now is like Golden Age Maximal. Move it where you have to, but for the most part, be extremely sympathetic to the land. Yeah. Yes, I agree with you. I, and it just you know I don't I don't like this whole faux minimalism thing where you move 600 million square yards of cubic yards of dirt and tell me that it's faux, that's minimalism because it looks minimalism. I don't like that. I mean, yeah. you can do some good stuff with the land without, without having to create all this stuff. You don't make as much money because you don't move as much land, move as much dirt. But I, I like that. I agree with that. I mean, you go again, going back to, to Newport country club, 
Look how much earth out there didn't get moved. And what a fantastic golf course that is, right? Yeah, it's it's so true. It's like it's it, so Garrett Morrison who uh he edited the Country Club of Charleston article and like the first thing he he said to me after reading, you know, my art it, he was like, "Man, we need more golf courses like Country Club of Charleston." <laughs> it's absolutely true. I mean, you just kind of what's the word? I mean, you you meander you know, that kind of thing. And so you don't go on a hike. Who said that? You meander, you know, you kind of wander. You just kind of wander through that property. It's just so nice and it just flows so easy. And, you know, there's all these bunkers, but they're not offensive and they're not flash sand and they're not t- taking your eye away from nature. They're not taking your eye away from the golf course. Yeah. Yeah. It's all brilliant stuff. I agree. And it's like, I think one of the big things with like Country Club of Charleston is when you look at it at a bigger scale, like say I'm a say I'm a county that has a you know a modest piece of land, like Country Club of Charleston is attainable attainable for every county in America. <laughs> right, like every need, county could have a golf that, course this right. way. You don't need greens that size. I absolutely agree with you. But other than that, you could have a strategic, fun golf course and not have to move a lot of dirt. Yeah, it's like, you know, like that's the thing that I think, like everybody, you know, it's like what we see with Augusta National is everybody seems to take away the 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 pristine conditioning and, and doesn't look at all the other great things, uh, like the other great things that Augusta National has, you know? Right. You get you get caught up in all of that stuff. And and, yeah. Well, we know that. I mean, I've said this for a long time. People will drive by really good low, well, nine hole golf courses for sure to get to a great nine hole golf course, to get to a mediocre 18 hole golf course. You, you know, it's just, I, I, but you're right to get to your point. Yes. Municipalities could get 140, 160 acres and build a fantastic golf course with very few bunkers. Just make it, just make it a fun layout, you know, and go from there. Yeah. So, uh, a couple, a couple kind of, uh, quick, uh, quick hitters and we'll do you know we'll have to do another one of these on a on a grander scale one of these days okay you know about right. about uh mr jagger yeah it's like my favorite my favorite uh fact about seth rayner seth, seth seth jagger rayner his middle name's jagger <laughs> he has to be related right exactly keep him here keep him here somehow related he's got gotta be um okay so most, uh, what would you say, what, what do you find to be uh, of years of studying? What's your, what do you think is the most overlooked aspect of the brilliance of Rainer? I, I think what we said before is his, his own golf holes. The, the, when you get to a golf course and you find the non-template holes and you realize how good they are. I mean, it's, it's, it's really quite amazing. The other thing is, and I don't know if this is his, Charles Banks is his protege. What did he teach Banks? Banks knew nothing about golf design. He didn't even play golf in high school or in college. He was a, he was a baseball player and he was a he was a track star. What did what did he what was he be able to impart on on Banks to make Banks such a great designer as well? Yeah, that's. I mean, I uh, his stuff. I think that's uh, him and Langford and Moreau were like the evolution of McDonald Rayner. You know. Yes. Yes. I and, agree. It, have you ever uncovered any connection with Langford Moreau and Rayner? No, no. Um, I'm trying to think. I think it was Ron Force told me that there is absolutely like two eras of Langford Moreau design. Yeah. And he has a theory that somewhere Langford saw a Rayner or McDonald golf course and went, okay, this is what I have to do. I wonder, well, there was Langford before Moreau. Right. And then Langford after Moreau. And Langford before Moreau was so subtle, but like really good strategically. I, I always wonder if he went back and played Yale or something. Right. Because that could have been it, right? Oh, yeah. And he's out in the Midwest. Does he see St. Louis? Does he see Chicago? I mean, he had to you know, have seen Chicago. Milwaukee, right? Camargo, does he see those golf courses? Because if he does, you know, that's going to that's gonna change him. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy i i mean because they're like a very clear evolution in my mind um, right and what's the your... other thing about the other uh, thing about what you say about banks is that's fascinating is he's more mcdonald than rayner is 
I mean, I find his green complexes to be bolder. And, you know, he does stuff like puts a spine in the middle of a reverse Rodan at Forsgate, but he also wrote. He's like McDonald. He wrote. Rainer didn't write. Yeah. It's or fascinating. We just that, don't that, have it. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, Rainer, Rainer never, as far as we know, right, wrote one newspaper article, had a diary, had more than, you know, the interview for the Olympic Club isn't isn't in depth. He doesn't. The interviewer talks about how Rainer doesn't doesn't want to reveal anything, doesn't want to talk. Yeah, that's, that's Yeah. And then you get and then you get Banks, who goes out and writes a seven part series for. Was an American golfer about mm -hmm. golf course design, and it's fantastic. I mean, yeah. seven part series. He was just a surveyor, you know. He was a surveyor from <laughs> Southampton. Yeah, yeah, but Banks was a, an English teacher and a fundraiser at the Hotchkiss School. But he was an English teacher, English and engineering. <laughs> they're t they're uh, two different two different <laughs> wavelengths. All right, all right, I'll get you. Okay, so the English part we can get the writing, but where does he get the design stuff? Right, yeah. isn't that cool? That's right. very cool. Um, yeah. So, uh, all right, last qu last question here. Yeah. What's uh? Give us your 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 favorite little known Rainer fact that you know you like to drop. That that most people, <laughs> most schmucks like me wouldn't know. All right, so ja you took away my Jagger one because nobody knows that his middle name is Jagger. It's a great um, middle name, right? It, I'm, right. I'm thinking about just calling him Jagger from now on. <laughs> Jagger Rainer. Yeah. I, I think the fun, the thing that I found out about him, you know, when you see all the photos, he seems to be a be a very stoic person, almost unemotional, and. From what I understand, what I've found out from his grandniece is that his wife, Minta, was, was a card. She was really funny and full of life and always bubbly. And the four or so photos of I have of them together, she's laughing or doing something in every photo. And she traveled with him later in his career. She went everywhere with him. So when Banks wrote this piece a year after McDonald, excuse me, after Rainer died, about being with Rainer at Lookout Mountain, which was then called Fairyland Golf Club. Yeah. And and she was with him. And 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 when they they spent a week there and Banks stayed at Lookout. And according to Banks, Rainer went to uh, Cincinnati, which would have been Camargo, Milwaukee, which is Blue Mound. He goes out to California. He goes to Hawaii. Araminta's with him for that whole time. So he's working sun up to sundown at Lookout and she's doing her thing on the mountain or going into Chattanooga or whatever, and you just see these photos, and she just looks like such a funny person. And 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 uh, Mary Cummings, uh, Rainer's granny, said she couldn't wait to see Aunt Minta, that she was always always fun and always great to be around, and she just seems this opposite personality than than Seth Rainer. But I think it's it's a huge window into who Seth Rainer was. Do you think he was more like his wife than than the photos would suggest, or do you think this is an opposites attract situation? I think it's one of those ones where he really appreciated that. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. I'm just, I'm guessing. I don't know, but she's just when you see the photos, she just looks like like she's up to no good. Like she's gonna crack a joke. Like she's giggling about something. You know, when he's standing there, like he looks like a statue in one of the famous photos, and you're just like, wow. That, and he's he was like, this is the person I want with me when I go cross country on on these crazy train trips, you know, to get to California from from Tennessee. You had to go where o Omaha change trains there, you know, and then go to Sacramento and change trains there to get down to, you know, San Francisco and then take the steamer to Hawaii. And she was with him. That's like with him. The, the travel is just wild to even think about. And I'm sure the train cars were like had some had some shenanigans going on yeah and you know one of my one of the good there's two other guys that do a lot of research with me um brett lawrence who's a member at hodgkiss and a, and a guy named nigel islam and you know brett lawrence pointed out to me that there wasn't a cross-country train you didn't get on a train in new york and end up at, on the west coast you were changing in chicago and you were changing in in omaha and and it's like this wasn't just get on the train and I'll see you in, a, in we'll, we'll be there in five days. There was a lot going on. So it's quite amazing. And he traveled with her. Is there is, any notes in the clubs uh, about Rainer actually playing golf at his courses? Nothing that we've ever seen. And I've never known him to be on site of a golf course once it was completed. 
right? Yeah. I mean, but, yeah. right. But even like you said, in those days when they're, they're, they're building slowly, some holes would be grassed and playable by the time the last holes were being grassed. And you never hear that. I don't know if like that's the, the crazy other crazy thing to think about with Seth Rayner is like you know arguably the architect most deserving to be in the Hall of Fame that's not you know and oh without uh, a doubt without and, a doubt right and he may never have never have really played golf right right <laughs> we know right he it seemed like he picked up some clubs every now and then and he said at some point or he was quoted as saying that he didn't want to get good at the game because then he'd start to design for himself. Yeah. for his game and he didn't want to do that see that's a, that's a fascinating thing because you see it with almost every architect they are blind to their own game whether they like it or not right and didn't jack nicholas finally admitted that right that in all on his courses the the high fade was the best shot to play into all his greens mm-hmm. he finally admitted that a lot of people knew that before before he knew it it's it's like McDonald's. It all it, America was doomed from the start with golfing architects. You know McDonald with his uh, with his uh, fade when everybody hooked it because the clothes <laughs> were too tight. Design a golf course with like ten holes on out of bounds left, none with out of bounds right. Right. You know, and and to get back to a question you asked me before, maybe surprising things about Seth Rayner. I, I think it's really interesting. Um, he's one of the few golfers, a few architects that I can think of that doesn't necessarily open a course with an easy hole. Because, you know, in those days, there was no practice. You had no range. So you went out and they kind of eased you into the round. And you think about something like the first hole at Yale or the first hole at Country Club at Charleston and the first hole at Hodgkiss. Right away, you have to golf your ball. Yeah. You know, he had other and, – and, and, but he didn't follow those patterns because then you can go to other courses where the first hole wasn't difficult. You know, where the first hole was a manageable par four or a par five. And and that's one of the other things I found out about. You know, is that he 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 did he did things as the site dictated, not by following any kind of structure. He really pattern. loved two shot redans too. I, and I, he's the guy that I think he's the guy that invented it. They the the author in that piece for the Olympic Club refers to a two shot redan. He actually uses that phrase in that article, and that's nineteen eighteen. And I'm not sure that anybody else came up with that, came up with that phrase, or I've never, we've never found it before then, you know, and you, but you're right. And it's a, and it's a wonderful strategy. It's a wonderful hole because even if you knock down your drive, you can still play it. I played holes that are two shot short holes that don't work because you have to lay up. Yeah. That's but with, with a two shot Redan, you can knock down your drive or be well back and still play that ground game and get it to where it's supposed to go, or at least get it onto the green. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like one of the best ways to combat wedges is with a green that falls away, and that's like what makes two shot redance so good. Now it's like you know twelve at at Fishers, one at one at uh, one at Chicago Golf is kind of one, right. and you got one right. at Fox Chapel. You got, I mean, they're all over the place. Right. One at Blue eight, Mound. Yep, eight at Yale. Yeah, uh, one at Hodgkiss. I'm just trying to think of uh, eleven at Yale too. Uh, yes, eleven at Yale, right, right. So you have two of them there, right? I don't know and how one, to explain. Are, I don't are, know how to explain eight at Yale. That's like a a cape reverse Redan Redan. It's a it's a cape. I would yeah. I mean, Banks refers to it as that green side as as having cape properties. In in Banks's and McDonald and Rayner's mind, the cape was all about the green. It had nothing to do with the tee shot. Yeah, can, and, can you go into that? This is kind of one of my pet peeves. So somewhere along the line, people came to uh, came to believe that a cape hole involved a bite off tee shot. So you kind of played out to a peninsula as if you were playing from Boston out onto Cape Cod. But to McDonald and Banks and Rayner, the cape aspect was the green, that the green was what was sticking out into the hazard, whether it be water like the hole at mid-ocean or whether it be surrounded by uh, uh, have sand on you know, two sides like eight at eight at Yale or this week's two at country club of Charleston. Correct. Correct. And so the Cape has absolutely nothing to do with the tee shot. Rainer and Wiggum, I mean, uh, McDonald and, and Wiggum co-wrote an article about it and they refer to it as justice of the green. And when Banks writes about Yale for the Yale daily 
or the Yale Alumni Magazine, he talks about the green having Cape qualities. It's never, never, never about the tee shot. And there can be bite-off tee shots, but that's not the Cape aspect to them. All their hole designs, when they refer to holes, they're talking about the green. That's why when you look at something like the long-gone nine-hole Ocean Links, they refer to the, is it the second? I'm going to get confused, but I think it's the second hole they refer to as Shore Acres. And there's no hole at Shore Acres that ever looked like that. It's the green of that hole that mimicked a green or, or was patterned after a green at Shore Acres. That's mm-hmm. why it's called Shore Acres. And so, so for them, the, the concept of Cape is all about the green. Yes, you can have a bite-off tee shot, but it's not required. The second hole at Yale is referred to as a Cape. It does not have a bite-off tee shot. We, we know where the original tees are. We still play them. There's no bite-off tee shot there. Yeah, and it, there's a lot of times they create that that with a cross bunker or a Yale. You right, kind right. of have you have like right. the the chasm down the left, you know that mimic. But it's not the yeah exactly. It, you know, like the the bunkers they usually use, or you know, Shore Acres has the ravine. There's something that protects the ideal line on all of them, but it's not. That's not the fundamental part of the hole. Right. And, and, and the, the, the problem is on, for the player is if you take the conservative route, that's going to cause you to have a, an approach shot that requires you to play kind of across the green or diagonally into the green rather than down the fall line or I mean down the access of it, not down the fall line, down the access of it. And that's, that's I think where people get the strategy wrong is, and, they, and they miss why they, they miss the whole Cape concept is, is they don't understand the importance of placing the tee shot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I I think, I mean, I think that's a good way. That's the, you know, last, uh, we'll we'll give people a little bit of, uh, (laughs) you know, education here. It's, it's one of my like pet peeves when I hear, like you hear it on telecast all the time. Oh, this Cape T shot. It's like, that's not a thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a thing as far as we know. I mean, it's not a thing for McDonald banks and Rainer. I mean, that's not how they think of Cape hole, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. So, uh, well, thanks for coming on. Uh, we'll, we're excited to watch uh, Rainer on display. I'm sure you're you're really excited. Well, yeah. I mean, it's great, right? We get to see Rainer. We get to see uh, Brian Silva's restoration of the golf course. We get to see the work that Kyle France did. It's it. We finally get to see Rainer in you know a, a USGA primetime. The yeah. PJ Tours had him in primetime, but I I love this golf course and I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see the women play it. Um. So uh, yeah, that, it'll, it'll be awesome. I, I hope for good weather, and uh, I think we're going to see a lot of relevant architecture on TV, which uh, it doesn't happen every week. Right, and being played like we talked about before, being played the right way. Right, we're gonna. We hope we want to. We hope to see the ball on the ground, uh, running onto these greens, and that that would be fantastic. Yeah. So uh, thanks so much, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you for the invite. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you.